For your Emmy consideration, HBO presents Barry, nominated for 11 Emmys, including Outstanding Comedy Series and Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series for Bill Hader. Don't miss the series critics call Brilliant and Dazzling. Barry is now streaming on Max. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. My guest today is Paris Barclay, who is nominated for an Emmy for his direction of the silenced episode of Netflix's Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. I first became aware of Paris's work as a film student when I discovered that the same filmmaker who directed some of my favorite episodes of ER also happened to be responsible for one of my favorite comedies, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. In the years since then, that kind of versatility is what Paris has become known for. His ability to jump between genres and styles has made him an Emmy nominee in the drama, comedy, and limited or anthology series or TV movie categories. And he's won twice in the drama category for his great work on NYPD Blue. His silenced episode of Dahmer is one of the best hours of television he's ever directed, a masterclass in how to use camera placement and sound design to put the audience in the shoes of a character. Thankfully, that character is not Dahmer, but one of his victims, played in a beautiful and heartbreaking performance by Rodney Burford. I'm thrilled to have Paris here to talk about that performance, finding cinematic corollaries for his character's POV, and whatever else comes up as we talk. Welcome, Paris. Very, very happy to be here. Thank you, Jim. So... I guess, uh, you know, you have this now longstanding relationship with Ryan Murphy going back at least as far as Glee. Maybe it was even before that. I don't remember. But how does it work with him when you come on one of his shows? uh, Does he come to you with a specific episode like Silence that he wants you to direct? Does he come just wanting you to work on the overall series and you guys talk it out? How did you come to direct this specific episode as well as the finale? Well, in the olden days, it used to be I'd just get booked for an episode. I think that's what happened with Glee. They just, you know, it was episode number six. Just happened to be Wheels, which was a terrific episode. And, you know, I did very well with that. But nowadays, he calls me and he has a specific episode in mind. So he called and said, I don't know if you've heard, I'm doing the Jeffrey Dahmer story. And I said, okay, bye. Because <laughs> uh, that's not anything that I wanted to be a part of. He said, but wait, there's more. And the more was that this particular episode was going to be really told as much as possible from the point of view of the victim of Dahmer. And he was a step gay black man. I said, wait, 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 I have not heard this story. So he told me a little bit about the story. And I'm still thinking in the back of my head, I've never really done horror. I've never really done anything that's that challenging. I don't know. But as he told me the story, I started to see how it could actually be a real positive message, oddly enough, in the Dahmer world. And so I agreed to do it. And then I got the script. And so what was your reaction (laughs) when you got that, uh, that script? Uh, well, uh, I said, this is going to be a lot tougher than I thought. This is going to demand not only emotionally a lot out of me, it's going to demand a way to figure out how to tell a story that is different from the rest of the series. And Ryan really meant it to be sort of the pivot point of the series where we start to turn our attention towards the victim and the effect of Dahmer on society and, and what the police did and didn't do. So I said, yeah, there's a huge responsibility here not only on the series, but also for every black gay person and every deaf person who sees this. And I want to do it really well. And so it caused a lot of stress, actually, when I first read it. And and that was because it was so good. Mm-hmm. If it was not good, I wouldn't be worried. But because it was so good, I felt, hmm, I'm going to have to step up on this one. You know, you mentioned that it's a pivot point in the series, which is one of the things I loved about it. Like, I did feel like the whole show kind of uh, shifted at that point. Are you, are you able 
before you direct this episode to see footage from the other episodes? Like, what's what stage is the show at at the point when you come on? Yeah, it was unfortunate because they were still shooting episode one by the time I got to do this. I mean, there were still parts of it that needed to be done, and so it wasn't put together. So I only saw fragments of it, and I got to look at some dailies to see sort of the stylistic things that were being done. But I didn't get a chance to see a cohesive episode. And I thought, that's going to be really bad. But... As it turns out, it ended up being a blessing. Mm. How so? Because it needed to have both the DNA of the show as previously seen, but also it needed to take it in a new direction. And so what I accumulated from Jason McCormick, who had been the original DP and had done the first few episodes, and it really set up, and I have it right here, a page of rules for the show. So I had that page of rules, but at the same time, the script didn't conform to a story that could be told within the rules of Dahmer so far, because the script was a departure and because it was the beginning of a new chapter in the way the 10 arc story was going to be done. So I, I'm sort of glad I didn't see everything because it would have made me maybe a little bit too paranoid and maybe a little bit too precious about maintaining the very, very strict rules of style that had been established. Uh, that's interesting. What were some of those rules that the DP gave you? Well, I'm reading now. The original DP, Jason McCormick, who is brilliant, by the way, the first rule was, thou shalt not steady. The camera should be moved with extreme control and precision. Okay. Later it says, when in doubt, center punch. And then it says, start with a 27 millimeter or 37 millimeter, shoot close to wide open. Hmm. It should also not favor clinical symmetry. Symmetry is used for effect, never a guiding light. Coverage is an exercise in efficiency and minimalism. Do not cover out of fear or approach coverage in conventional tropes or TV coverage. Allow the action to come and go from a fixed frame. Do not move the camera without strong motivation. And then in underscored and bold, be still. So that's just some of the rules that were sort of laid out for all of the directors and the DPs who worked on Dahmer. And while I generally like a rule book, and when I'm starting a series, when I, when I did the pilot of Pitch or I did the pilot of Station 19, I definitely had defining rules. I hadn't faced such a rigorous list as this. And then when I took this list and compared it to the story, which really started with a different protagonist in a different world for 17 minutes, we're just with Tony not all of these rules worked for that, for the way that story needed to be told. And I was taught, I don't know when, but somewhere in my directing life, that every episode you do, you should find yourself in the story. You should find what is the beating heart that you really believe matters in this story and bring that out. And for me, it was the heroism of Tony Hughes. Although in the end, it ends up tragically. It's just that he's the core of it. He is the protagonist. And so I had to take some of these rules and I had to figure out a way to work within them so it didn't seem like it was a wholly new show, but also take it in this new direction. So with John O'Connor, who is the actual DP for this episode, who is a terrific camera operator, he's operated on Top Gun Maverick and done lots of good films and now is a big time cinematographer. He and I just said, okay, we have these rules and we have the story. And now just like in any episodic world, we've got to figure out how to do both. And then we hit on a plan, which I shouldn't reveal to you, I don't think, Jim. <laughs> Why not? Our plan is that this show would start in a new visual language with Tony, 
and that the camera should move because he's a man on the move and he's on, on the go and it's a brighter world. It should be essentially everything that's not <laughs> these particular rules. And then when we introduce um, Dahmer, it should still strictly adhere to the point of view rules that are in here too. It says there shouldn't be no Dahmer point of view. So when he first sees Dahmer, it's all from Tony's point of view. And as much as possible, we stay in Tony's point of view and we stay away from really looking at the world through Dahmer's eyes, except when he does things that bring back the earlier episodes, like when he's getting ready to crush some pills. We shot those exactly the way that those scenes have been done in earlier episodes. You know, when he's alone in the bar and he's been dancing with Tony and he goes to the bar to consider crushing pills, he's center punched. He's in short, wide focus. He's contemplating the way that he did in the hotel room earlier and in the baths earlier. And as the show goes on, Dahmer's point of view, not point of view, but Dahmer's style is going to take over until we get to the final scene, which is what we would call the full Dahmer. Tony has now been dispatched and is about to be dis uh, devoured. And so now we're really in that dark, yellow, fluorescently lit, center-punched, still camera world that had been defined in the series before. So eventually in the course of this episode, Dahmer's style takes over too, and the show returns to the world that's dominated by Dahmer once Tony is no longer a part of his life. Well, this is great. Everything you're saying here fits perfectly with my emotional response to the show, which is exactly what you're saying. I felt like I was, you know, with the Tony character the whole time, but then there was this... It, the end of it, of the the very end of the episode is really unsettling the way that it sort of, I don't know if I would say it takes on Dahmer's point of view, but it does, there is like this very strong shift. And even with the way the sound drops out and all of that, it's, uh, it's really, really effective. And it's interesting because sound plays such a big part of it. I know we're largely talking about visual elements, but here the sound was virtually a visual element in it. And the sound design of how it dropped out and when it was Tony's point of view, literally what he could hear and what, what he couldn't hear. And then that's all refracted in that last scene. Because Dahmer's there making the meal and he's distracted by the sounds of the street. He's distracted by the noise in his head. And once he takes that bite, he finds silence, which is the title of the episode. But also, it's the quiet that he's been searching for. He needed to possess and own and bring into himself these people for whatever psychotic reasons we'll never understand. But that, for that moment anyway, quieted the disquiet in his soul. And so... That sound metaphor also becomes not only the, the sort of title thing, but also brings us back to we are now back to the Dahmer trip. Get ready. It is really interesting throughout the episode uh, where you decide to go silent and where, you, where you're not and how that puts you in Tony's point of view. And like the, the scenes between him and his family are really interesting in that sense. And I'm curious how many of those decisions are made ahead of time are like are they are they made in the sound mix are you are they made in pre-production is it sort of a combination of all of that many of them were scripted the script had specific scenes that they wanted to be silent one of them was the dinner table conversation with his family for instance but in the rehearsal and in talking with the ASL people they said that feels unreal because there are hearing people here as well as deaf people so it feels like it would be more realistic if we had, you know, the sound there. And so we changed that. Another scene that was originally designed to be sound, to be without sound, is when Rodney first meets Jeffrey. 
And so Jeffrey's words that he says would not be heard. We would still be totally in Tony's point of view. But we thought there's something eerie and dangerous for the audience if after all of this Tony's point of view and sound and he sees him, once he arrives at Jeffrey, we suddenly hear Jeffrey. And that voice and the way Evan was doing it just gives you just a sense of dread. You're going, oh, no, not you don't. I know this is the Dahmer story, but not this kid. And we thought that voice made that more powerful. So we sort of bounced between using sound and not using sound. We shot the original scene when the baby is there with the doctor and the mother is saying, what's wrong with my baby? And the doctor says, because of the antibiotics, he seems to have lost his hearing. We shot that to be without sound at all, uh, just from the baby's point of view, just from Tony's point of view, even then. But then we thought there are stuff, there's stuff here the audience needs to hear. Right. <laughs> so then we tried a mix where it was just muffled and as if the baby had not had complete hearing loss, but could hear certain worlds words and then that didn't work and so then we went to the whole natural sound that the mother would hear so we kept experimenting with it each time and some scenes ended up being silent some scenes ended up having their tracks it just it just varied as to how the pattern laid out in the end uh you mentioning the early scene with the mother and i love the way you open the episode i love the little prologue of him being born and it's got this very interesting kind of textured, almost like faded Polaroid look or something to it. What kinds of conversations did you have with the DP about how you were going to achieve that? Or is that something that's, is that like a treatment in post? Or does that have something to do with the way the DP is shooting it? Or So interesting. Well, this gets a little technical, but why not? I mean, technical people like a little technical, right? Sure. So we were shooting with the Sony Venice camera and with the Tri Blackwing 7 series of lenses, which you know some people may not be familiar with, but they're newer lenses that Bradford Young and other people had developed, and now they're gaining popularity. And what's interesting about those lenses is that you know every certain millimeter is a 7. So you have a 27, a 37, a 47. You don't have anything in between. So the usual lens sizes that you have are now changed into these sevens. And what what's becomes interesting about that is it gives the whole series a certain unity that you feel but you don't know because the lens sizes are strictly defined as these five or six lenses. And there's no zoom. There's nothing in between. You're not going to zoom into an 85 or something. You can't do that. So you can only choose between these focal lengths, which makes it really interesting. Plus, we had a regular set that was tuned a certain way and another set that was tuned to be a little bit more off. And that was used for some of the worst times of Jeffrey Dahmer's experience. So I think, if my memory serves, we used the sort of degraded set of seven lenses in the beginning at a slower frame rate. I think it was six or eight frames. I can't remember exactly what it was to get that sort of smeary look on top of it. And then we made a production design that was virtually devoid of color. We didn't take a lot of color out. We just designed it that way to have very little color in it. So you've got the color, you've got the frame rate, you've got the weird ass lenses. And then on top of it, we break a rule because it doesn't say I'm allowed to do this, but we did it handheld, which there's not a lot of handheld in Dahmer until that moment. And so we thought, oh, this kind of breaks also open the whole aesthetic a little bit because we're starting with this birth scene in this weird past with this black child and it's also handheld and smeary and faded and what is going on and the sound refracted and it became like a big cornucopia of ideas mm -hmm. yeah it's a great opening you know thinking about that opening and also thinking about what you were saying about the uh the guiding principles that you got from the dp where it said you know not to do coverage out of fear something that strikes me about 
this show, as well as a lot of Ryan Murphy shows, is they are so audacious and ambitious for television. You don't see conventional coverage in a Ryan Murphy show. And like it, it seems to me like these shows must be really liberating for you as a director to come on because they they are sort of pushing you to do things in an unconventional way. I mean, uh, yeah, and, I, and I guess I'm sort of curious, like what for you, well, there's two questions here. I mean, I guess I'm interested in your uh, your kind of collaboration, your kind of ongoing collaboration with Ryan Murphy in particular, but also just in general, what you think makes a productive showrunner-director relationship? Well, with Ryan, it's I can only say I'm blessed in that Ryan gives me a lot of leeway. And I know from what I've heard, he doesn't give this to every director, but he gives me a lot of permission. He, he allows me to cast all the parts that are not principal and recurring people. So, you know, that's something that not everyone enjoys. But he also believes in my sensibility. And so when he gave me this episode, I said, Ryan, you recognize that this is going to be like an, a, a visual departure from everything else. And he said, yes, I get that. And you just have to do it with your taste and, and make it strong, but at the same time, a part of. So I said, okay, if I can figure that out. Now, Jason, on the other hand, who's still around, he's still shooting one, is, you know, a little bit like trying to hold on to the aesthetic of it all. But fortunately, because I have Ryan, Ryan's always saying, no, I think this is the one that does take a, a step out. And so go. And so Ryan's faith in me, I guess, has been probably the reason why I keep coming back to work with him is because generally he is, you know, extremely trusting in the decisions I make, especially when it comes to um, how actors act and their performance. Um, he and I are very much in sync in, about the taste question, which is something that's really hard to achieve. What is really funny, what's funny to me tends to be funny to Ryan. What's horrifying and too much to me also tends to be in sync. So we have that going on, which you just can't replicate other places. So I think as long as he continues to do interesting, weird, twisted, demented, and slightly off-guard stuff, and maybe a musical again, I'll probably hang out with him. Well, you know, you mentioned the actors and the performances in this thing. I mean, across the board in the series as a whole, they're great. But then in this episode... Uh, the actor who you've got playing Tony, who I had never seen before, is incredible and heartbreaking. And uh, where did you find him? <laughs> well, he was cast before I actually arrived and landed. And his name, Rodney Burford, he had only been in one thing, which was a reality show called Deaf You, which I looked at. I believe it was on the Netflix also. I'm not sure. Um, and he was kind of himself. And I was very worried. I said, so I have an actor... <laughs> who this whole thing hinges on, who really hasn't dramatically acted before. And he's going to spend all these scenes with Evan Peters, who is one of the best actors we got going. Right. So how's this going to work? So then I met with him just via Zoom because we're in the height of COVID. And I thought, ah, I know how this is going to work. I'm going to have to teach him how not to act. I'm going to have to teach him how to be himself and use whatever Rodney is to be Tony. Because Rodney is inherently very likable and very upbeat and also very tall, which is taller than Evan, which was interesting. Um, but, but he's also inherently charming. So I have to convince him not to play a part and not to say lines or try to achieve effects or to match it. I just have to convince him just to be Rodney in this situation. And that actually he took to, although occasionally he wanted to act because he was with Evan and he would try to act. And I would say, no, 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 just 
be Rodney. Just live in this as you would and have this experience as Rodney would. And he actually was able to, especially over time, over after the first few days, to kind of let go of, I need to achieve an effect. Because he did not have the skills to actually do that. But what he did have is his own personality and his own way of walking and his own way of carrying himself. And all that stuff became Tony. So I don't know. I've never met Tony Hughes. And obviously, I never could. But I don't know if that's exactly him. But I felt he got his spirit by just imbuing it with Rodneyness. And so when you're dealing with an actor who cannot act at all, you hope that they can just be themselves because maybe their authenticity will shine through. We lucked out with Rodney. And then as the shoot went on, because it was about 20 days, I think we shot this thing. It was a long time. He picked up things from, from Evan. He learned more about how to keep it really simple. And he started to act a little bit. And it was just in time. And some of it I used and some of it I couldn't. But he just, he learned so much in the course of that. And Evan taught him a lot, you know, very selflessly throughout the whole process. So we ended up with a better actor. And I can't imagine a more perfect choice for that role, as it turns out. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by movies or TV shows that blend someone like that, someone who's either a non-professional actor or an actor without experience with someone like Evan Peters, who, as you say, is, you know, one of the great actors in TV right now. I mean, it's, do you think on some level, uh, does working with someone like that help Evan too? Yeah, I think it does. I think it helped Evan get a little bit out of Jeffrey Dahmer because he did become Evan, the actor who is generally a very generous and helpful person. So in his helping of Rodney, it helped relieve some of the tension of being Jeffrey Dahmer. And admittedly, this is an episode Evan was looking forward to. I had a long conversation with him before we started. He said, oh, my God, I can't wait for this episode because he got to be a little lighter for most of it. He didn't have to really drag himself through the emotional ringer that he went through for so many of the other episodes. So he was looking forward to it. So he became sort of the real Evan to a certain extent, generous to, you know, to Rodney in a way that I've never seen an actor do before. And here's the other thing that I just thought of now. I think Evan lifted up Rodney's performance by the way he looked at him. You know, Evan looked at Rodney like he was Tony Hughes. And just that look in the audience's mind makes Rodney or Tony better. Because the the way that he was attracted to him, the way that he leaned into his shoulder at one point, all that stuff that Evan does actually imbues the actor he's working opposite with, with strength and nobility and attractiveness because of the way Evan is actually reacting to him. So it's kind of interesting. I think Evan's performance is underrated in a way in building Tony's performance because a lot of it is what actors are supposed to be really good at, which is reacting. And the way Evan reacted to him made him, you know, just lifted him up. Absolutely. Um, on a show like this, an episode like this in particular, where the material is in some ways so dark, I mean, what kind of environment do you try to create on set for the actors and the crew? I mean, is it a thing where you you want the environment to be lighter because the material is so dark? Or do you have to kind of keep everybody in a certain headspace so that they don't get out of that dark place? I mean, what's, uh, what's the mood like on the set? That's a really good question. Well, my normal mood on the set is quite light. I am very um, silly, I guess is the best word to describe my directing style. Uh, I am jovial. I eat a lot of chocolate and I have a lot of fun and I learn everyone's name and I call them by their names and I generally have a very collegial style. 
it didn't really work in this mood. Um, I felt I had to modify it. I had to be more serious than I would like to be. I didn't feel like my joviality was appropriate for this particular piece. So I had to pull it back like 80%. You had 20% joviality. And I had to make the shooting days shorter. The crew had just come from some grueling episodes. I mean, when they were dealing with Conrack, who is the, the Thai young boy who was taken back, and, and when he was finally killed, that was very traumatic for the crew. Because if you've ever been on a set, you know that if you're going to put a drill into a young boy's head and you're going to do it seven times and you're going to do it in different angles, it does start to affect the crew. So I recognized that they'd been through some traumas recreating Jeffrey's traumatic behavior. So I needed to make it short. I needed to come in here, get what we had to do done, and leave. So that was my number one thing. What's the simplest way I could do this? How can I make these days livable for the crew? But then, unfortunately, I had Evan Peters, who loves a lot of takes. I mean, I can't wait till he does a Fincher movie because those two are made in heaven. He could do it 60 times and be totally happy. Uh, but I'm, I have this resistance. So, And also, Evan's really good when he starts, but he does get better as he gets to take 10 or 11 or 12. So you don't want to shorten him too much. But at the same time, you don't want to keep doing it so much that the crew wants to like gouge their eyes out. So we had to find a balance. And finally, as we went on, he trusted me more and more. And I could say, Evan, we got it. If you really want to try one more, I'll give it to you. But this is going to be it. And he respected that. But he literally could shoot all day long and find new things. And I didn't want to shortchange the movie or Evan. So that's basically, I had to keep it disciplined. I had to keep it tight. But I also had to allow for Evan to work through his process. Well, that raises kind of a broader directing question that I'm curious about for you. Because something that fascinates me about directors is that you can have someone like Clint Eastwood, who makes great movies and likes to do two or three takes maximum. Yeah, I don't think they're so great. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> for the sake of argument, <laughs> I'm right. sure there's somebody whose movies you like yes, who, who, who does, does I'm who trying does to think of, of who it is. But... I, I don't know. <laughs> Soderbergh, maybe. Somebody. Yeah, anyway. maybe Soderbergh. Uh, and then you've got somebody like Fincher, like you say, who does a ton or, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 th and their stuff's obviously great. You can't really argue. Right, Fincher's great. Argue. Okay. You can't argue <laughs> with the results there. Well, I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, where do you fall in terms of your ideal? I mean, is there is there a certain number that I mean, I know it's obviously going to change depending on the actor, depending on the movie. But do you feel like there is a certain point where you do you can do too many and kind of lose the momentum or lose the, the reacting on instinct and all that kind of thing? Well, I don't want to give away all my secrets in this one <laughs> podcast, but I will give away one, which I say in my directing classes. It's I think it's central to being a successful director is you can't be the same for every person. Every actor needs a different director, that's what I say. So you've got to figure out, and hopefully before you start shooting, what director does this actor need? And then you have to be that director. In the case of Evan, I learned in our first hour and a half conversation, he wants to try things a lot, he, but he also wants feedback and he wants ideas. He's not someone who's standoffish and creating his own thing. Some actors don't want you to even talk to them. They want it just to be able to create and you leave them alone. Evan's not one of those. Rodney needed a different director, totally. But depending upon the show, sometimes those directors or those actors will be in conflict. NYPD Blue is a perfect example. I mean, 
Jimmy Smith is very serious, very intense, not quite method, but really likes to dig deep into the character and have time to prepare, which was difficult when David Milch delivers the scripts on the day, usually, and that. But, you know, Dennis Franz is very, um, what is the correct term? It's not, he's not superficial, but the character is applied like a costume. He doesn't really dig deep into Sipwitz. He didn't feel anything Sipwitz ever felt. He won the Emmy, I think, four times for doing this. But it was all created completely without emotional toll. And it could be created, you know, as soon as you say action, he's Sipwitz. And that's that. It's like putting on the short sleeve shirt created that character for him. So they're in scenes together and they have to be directed completely differently. You could say, Dennis, I think I need a seven. That was like six. Can you just at least up it to seven or eight? Oh, okay, okay, I got you. <laughs> you know, you can talk to him about volume or pace. But Jimmy, you have to talk to about character and what motivates the character. You can't just tell him to be faster. You have to say, why? Is he going somewhere? Is there something urgent? I know your show is short, but that's not a reason for me to change it. So you have to find your ways with each person. So I've figured out many directors fail because they keep directing everyone because they think the director is supposed to do it a certain way. The director has to adjust everything for the actor and make sure the actor gets what they need. Because if you don't support and create a world where the actor is truly supported, you won't get anything that you need, I think. And do you ever run into a problem where you have an actor like, say, Evan Peters, who you say, you know, gets is, gets better as he's warming up and doing more takes? Like, do you ever run into a problem where you've got an actor who's maybe great, the best on take 10 or 11, somebody else who's best on the first take, and then they run out of steam? And how do you reconcile that? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, when I know that, like a good example of that is Charlie Hunnam and my friend, Katie Segal. Katie's really good out of the gate. She's good in the first couple of takes. Charlie is a little like Evan. He takes a minute to stew. So I tend to do the wider shots first that have both of them in it. And then I'll do his coverage and let it go. And she's going to go, oh, I'm sorry. I'll go to her first because she's going to go first and she's going to be great. And then I'll go to Evan and let, I mean, Evan to Charlie and let him spin. Now, usually she somehow gets another idea in it, which often happens. And sometimes I will have time to turn back around because his performance has grown. She feels she would respond differently to it. If I have an opportunity to do that, I will do that. I ended up by the end of the series cross shooting them a lot. So I always had coverage of both of them at the same time. But you just have to figure out what's the best order of events for these actors and when they peak and try to do it in that order. And so going back to the silenced episode, you know, something I really liked about it is it's got this kind of tender quality to it that the other episodes of the show don't have as much. I mean, I don't want to say, I wouldn't exactly call it a love story necessarily, but you've you've got this soft moving. I mean, for a while, if you didn't know where this is inevitably going to go, you know, it, it's kind of touching. And that's a really interesting tonal balance where you've got that, but it is also ultimately a horror movie, basically. And and I'm curious how tricky that tonal balance is. I mean, I'm sure some of it's there in the writing and kind of gives you the cues, but it still seems like kind of a directorial challenge to me. Yeah, it is. And we actually pulled it back from what we shot. From what you saw in the final episode, pulled back some of the things that came off a little bit too rom commy. I mean, when they're in the donut shop, they spend a long time and, 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 and he started to teach them sign language. When he was buying the jeans, which is just a short scene now, that played out into a near kiss in public. There are some of those elements that, you know, in the end, and we, I work very closely with Alexis Woodall, 
um, Martin, who is the president of Ryan Murphy's production and the person who really supervises post-production. And she sort of becomes our bellwether and our tastemaker and really is very sensitive to those issues. So we actually ended up pulling back some of the things that felt it was making it almost too romantic and the torture would have been even greater in the end and not as realistic. So we, we did balance it a lot and some of it just ended up with stuff left on the cutting room floor and that, that period of the two of them together became much shorter than it was scripted because it was just too painful. I guess my last question I have for you sort of has to do with the treatment of violence. You know, this episode, Silenced, is not particularly violent. In fact, I don't even know if there's really any there's on-screen not. violence. But then yeah. you also did the season finale, which does have some brutality in it. And that's very, very effective. But it's funny because watching the show as a whole, you know, my my wife watched it before I did and she loved it. But she's like, I can't believe this thing is popular. She's like, it's just so violent and so gory. And then I watched it and it is violent and gory, but it's not as violent and gory as you would. It it does, I think, linger in the memory more than it is actually on screen, a lot of it. And I'm curious for you what your, for lack of a better word, philosophy is about how to approach violence. I mean, are you... Are you a less is more guy? Like, you know, totally, mm -hmm. totally a less is more guy. And that's why, um, you know, even the killing of, of, of Tony in the episode, I believe might have been scripted that you actually saw the hammer raise. You may have seen him hit with it. I can't recall exactly. But we left it with the camera staying outside in the room. It was on Evan's feet. Evan drops the note that he had said. I think he had written a note that said, I'll, I will, I'll be back or whatever. And he runs off to it, and you don't hear a scream, and you, you just can see in the last frame the hammer raising and out. And then the next scene, Tony's dead. And I think just trying to stimulate the imagination instead of showing you the brutality worked really well in that episode. However, when we got to the finale, I, standing up for all black gay men, uh, felt that, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer needed to be really killed. And I mean, he needed to be killed a lot. So <laughs> I thought... How much can we kill him and actually get away with it? I felt the, it was all the God of vengeance. It was a lot about vengeance. And I felt the audience, certainly my friends and myself, felt that there needed to be some comeuppance for this guy, even though, yes, maybe he had bad parenting and his mother took too many drugs. I don't really care. So I did go more extreme in the actual pipe beating of, of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer in that because I felt... I felt actually I had the pipe in my hands <laughs> spiritually and I wanted it to be uh, to land. And that's just one of the things you can do as a director. I think some of it was cut back in the final cut from what I did because I really smashed him. And we had a prosthetic face made and, you know, there, there was a whole thing. Of, he went through stages when he was being beaten of makeup that we had to stop and then we had to take him to the next level and then continue so we did a lot of stuff to really make that pretty horrific. Um, for me, the most troubling sequence was at the beginning with John Wayne Gacy. For me, that was the most difficult violence to perpetrate. And I also grew up in Chicago, and I remember Gacy at Christmas time and what a nightmare that was. And um, that caused a lot of memories and feelings for me. So I had a lot of difficulty doing that, and I argued against it. 
I did eventually lose. I was afraid that perhaps this would promote Gacy as next year's monster, and I didn't want to do that at all. I don't know if Ryan could convince me to do that one. Um, so that was, to me, the most difficult violence to do. And even then, I tried to be far away from it. I tried to be above the bathtub and restrained. I did go under the water a little bit with the kid, but not much. I think that was all really pretty painful. So I do try to hold back a bit on on violence. I think we've seen a lot of violence. I don't know if we need to see a lot more. I think there's enough in our imagination. You can play the tape for us. If I give you a little bit of the song, you can play the rest of the song. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to say, you know, I think it uh, speaks to, you know, why I think you're a great director, that you had those feelings about Dahmer. And, and I get what you're saying about the pipe beating sequence. But then you after that, I feel like the scene where Richard Jenkins' character comes in and looks at the body is so devastating and heartbreaking and poignant even though it's like as a viewer you want this guy dead and you're you're glad that that Dahmer is dead um it still is a it still like has this really potent sense of tragedy to it well that brings me back to what I think the series was supposed to be about in the end anyway even though it's called Dahmer the Dahmer the Dahmer story it was really developing a story of the victims and, and some of their Pyrrhic victories and some of their failures and some of the failures of society to protect them. And that scene to me is really about his father as the victim. His father is is finally acknowledging, you know, his own mistakes. He's going through his own tape at the same time and the horror of seeing his son looking, you know, beaten like the elephant man to a pulp. And I think it, it brings his... His role as a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer clear, just like it does Nisi Nash's in the end, and just as it does Christopher, the guy who kills him. They all become victims of this horror, and that's part of why we did the show. We did the show not to glorify Jeffrey Dahmer, but to say, look at how many people's lives he destroyed. Some are not with us anymore. Some are still with us, but their lives have been destroyed. Where were we to help them, and how will we do better next time? I mean, that's why I think the series is worth seeing. It's a tough slog, certainly in the beginning, but if you can get all the way to the end, that's why I think this series is really going to be looked at as an important marker in time. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think it's a fantastic show, and I'm really glad you came here to talk with me about it because I, I do want to get the word out. And for people who kind of, uh, you know, their instinct is to react the way you reacted when Ryan Murphy told you he was doing this series, where they kind of think, ah, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't want to watch that. But it is a really, really complex Great show, and uh, I think your work on it is just terrific. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me Thank about you. it. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this. I will continue to listen because I learn something every time I hear from you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.